Hello and welcome to another Perusia podcast. I'm your host, Mark Griffin, and joining me today is a special guest host, the events coordinator with us here at Perusia, Matthew Taig. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. I have been interviewed on Perusia podcast, but this is my first time playing the role of host, so a wonderful opportunity. Thank no, you. No, thank you for coming on. It's good to have you here. And one of the main reasons we have you on this morning is because some disturbing news came to me over the last little while, and that is that the Perusia podcast is only your second favourite podcast. Is this true? <laughs> I'm afraid it is, yes. Uh, look, I, I'm not sure if it's simply Perusia podcast hasn't been around as long. Maybe we haven't had you on enough. Uh, maybe. Maybe that's all it is. Uh, but it could be that my my favourite uh, podcast uh, helps me to actively participate more in sacred liturgy. Absolutely. Now, you're you're laying the foundation for the introduction to our two <laughs> guests this morning. Our two guests are two of the three presenters on the podcast, The Liturgy Guys, that some of you may have come across. Anyone that's met Matthew Taig will more than likely have heard of it by now. But The Liturgy Guys is a podcast that's been running for quite a few years. And as I mentioned, we've got two of the three presenters on this morning, Jesse Weiler and Chris Carstens from the United States. So Jesse and Chris, good morning and welcome to you. Good morning. morning. Thanks very much for having us. No, it's wonderful to have you here. And and this morning, because it's the first time we've had you on the podcast, we'd like to get get to know both of you a little bit, um, learn a bit about uh, the Liturgy Guys podcast, the origins of that, uh, and the Liturgical Institute that 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 you're both. Um, represent and also we might like to to get into a, a little bit of q a um maybe a few of the questions that the common questions that come up and then down the track we hope to to have you back on the podcast as well and we can really take some deep dives into some of these liturgical topics but but first things first let's start with you jesse can you give us a little bit of your background and a little bit about how you came to be one of the hosts of the liturgy guys um, I became a host of the Liturgy Guys because I came up with the idea. And when you come up with an idea, then you get to be a part of something, I think. Um, my background is actually in video production and film. Uh, when I graduated college, I did uh, video production and film, and I got into marketing, and I worked at a parish for about four or five years. Uh, took a job at the Liturgical Institute about five years ago, uh, wanting to help them get into new media, create some content, and help the liturgical renewal. And as I started to learn more about what the Liturgical Institute was doing, I started to become very uh, awestruck about all the information that they were putting out there. And I actually got really angry uh, because nobody had told me these things before about the sacred liturgy. And I was learning all these really amazing things. One of those experiences actually led into the podcast, which was uh, on our campus, There's all these other institutes, and there's a large cafeteria, and then we also have a major university in the United States, uh, Mundelein Seminary, is on the same campus as us, and we were having lunch, Chris, myself, and Dennis, we were all having lunch with a seminarian at the time, and uh, he just asked a question about noble simplicity. He wanted to know what what that was all about and why, why things need to be simple in the liturgy. And then I just saw Dennis and Chris ping pong back and forth with excitement about explaining something very small and minute about the liturgy. And I just, to myself, I just said, this has to be a podcast. We, we have to have these conversations that nobody hears, but not in a divisive way, but in a way that's, you know, charitable and, and, and encouraging. So that's how the podcast got created. And I've been exploiting Chris Carson's ever since. 
And Chris, what about you? Uh, what, what, what's a bit of your background? And, and, and Jesse's obviously spoke about how the liturgy guys came about, but, but, but what's the Chris Carsten story leading up to the liturgy guys? Sure. It's, uh, I'll try not to let it get too boring, but uh, uh, I went to, uh, to college in Dallas, Texas for a graduate degree in philosophy. And I met a very nice girl from rural Wisconsin, which is where I live now. And we got married and moved to Wisconsin. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of call for uh, uh, philosophy majors in this part of the, uh, of the country or the state. And so I really needed a job, wanted to start a family and things like that. And there was a, an opening uh, in my diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin, in the liturgy office. Well, I didn't know anything about the liturgy at all, but I did know that I liked making some money and eating and sleeping uh, under a roof and things like that. So I kind of backed into uh, to the job having no experience. And just about that same time, the Liturgical Institute opened in 2001 in Chicago. And uh, my bishop sent me as uh, uh, one of the first students. I was in the very first class of the Liturgical Institute. And after I graduated, I went back and I've been working for 22 years now in the liturgy office in La Crosse, but I've, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe 15 or 18 years been teaching for the Liturgical Institute as well. And as uh, Jesse explained, uh, you know, it started uh, rather innocently over uh, lunch one day and some poor seminarian happened to ask a question that he maybe wished he had back. I don't know, but it, uh, uh, it sparked a conversation and we've been doing the, uh, the liturgy guys since then. And how good is it to be having conversations in the church rather than arguments, because it seems that any time a conversation goes public, it becomes an argument. So I would like to really um, echo what you were saying there is that the liturgy guys is a conversation. It's not um, someone arguing one side and someone arguing the other side. And Matthew, from you, you're the one that introduced me to the liturgy guys podcast. Is, is that what you're getting out of it? It's just a, a really interesting, engaging conversation. It's a way to, to swap notes, if you like, on, on things that, that maybe had never had enough attention, it would seem, in the years gone by, and they're becoming a little bit more um, important in people's minds. Definitely, and it's uh, it's one one of the things I found most attractive about listening to the liturgy guys is that it's, it's three guys who get on really well, who are clearly passionate about the subject, and are also pat passionate about imparting that knowledge to others. And uh, I'm curious to know, gentlemen, um, how much the podcast is um, like or dislike that original conversation that inspired the idea. Well, I'll, I'll take a crack at that, Chris. And by the way, Chris is literally the first graduate of the Liturgical Institute, but only because alphabetically Karstens came before the next graduate. So <laughs> That's he true. Was, he's the first one to walk across the stage alphabetically uh, for that first year. So um, I, I would say that um, while the, the foundation of the podcast is still similar to that original conversation, we try to keep that as the, as the vein that goes throughout the, the whole show. Um, but because, you know, there's so much to talk about the liturgy, we've been able to dive into other things where we dissect a liturgical document, which I don't think I've ever heard anybody else do. And I know that there are books and commentaries on different liturgical documents, but certainly nobody's doing it like, like we are. And I think the added benefit about uh, having the three of us together in a room is that we all bring something different to the table. Um, I'd probably bring the least amount to the table, but by doing, by doing that, I get to learn and 
and I get to be the everyman and I get to ask the questions that I think the everyday person is going to ask when, when these, when um, Dennis and Chris dive into these topics. Uh, unfortunately, I would say that over the course of, you know, we're, we're just about to close our fourth season of the podcast. Um, it's getting harder and harder to do that because I've learned so much from Dennis and Chris. It's so hard for me to, you know, take myself out, out of the conversation because I'm just so in tune with what they're saying. That's Fantastic. And as a listener, I would say I would echo that sentiment. The things that I have learned over the past couple of years have just grown and grown. And you've done immense um, service to me, particularly when it comes to not only serving at Mass, but also uh, simply being in the pews. So I thank you for that. And from my perspective as well, listening to the podcast, sometimes Chris and Dennis, the information, it just feels like information overload. And, And Jesse, having you there, it's fantastic because, I mean, the, you're only a fool if you don't ask the question. You might feel foolish, but you're only a fool if you don't ask the question. And Jesse, you asked the questions that we're all sitting there thinking, what, what does that mean? I, I got there, I was with you for a while, but, but I lost it. And, and Jesse, you asked those questions and you help us to keep up. So, so it, it's fantastic. Have you, you say that you bring the least to the table, but I don't think it's about bringing the least to the table. You bring to the table what us the listeners would bring if we were at the same table. So, yeah, we, we really appreciate that approach that you take with that. In fact, I, I, I tell them not to tell me what we're talking about so that I can maintain that. And so, um, so they work a lot on the sides, what they're going to talk about, you know, all that type of stuff. And I try to be like, you know, la, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not listening. You're coming so blind, that I yeah. can, yeah. So that I can have that unique experience of hearing something for the first time. But again, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, um, the, you know, you go four years of these podcasts and there's just, there's so much similarity all the way back to the early church documents. I mean, really nothing has changed that much. The church is always saying the same thing. Uh, I guess we just, we just need to hear it in different ways. And so, yes, the rights look different and they're updated and translated and all that stuff. But the church has been saying the same thing for thousands of years um, in regard to liturgy. Uh, we're just unpacking it in multiple different ways. Mm, fantastic. And you, gentlemen, you've mentioned the Liturgical Institute a couple of times. Would you tell us a little bit more about the Liturgical Institute? Uh, sure. The, the Liturgical Institute was created by uh, Colonel Francis George, uh, who is no longer with us. Uh, but he started the organization 20 years ago, and he basically wanted a graduate degree program in liturgical studies that would renew the sacred liturgy and return to the, the liturgy as this beautiful representation that helps us both worship God and sanctify mankind through transfiguration. And so he saw that that wasn't really happening in, in graduate degree programs in liturgical studies. So he said, I want that to happen uh, in my diocese, and I want to create this organization and this program. And, uh, and so he built this about 20 years ago. And so you know the liturgy guys is a side project. You know, from a marketing standpoint, it's really just it's it's a sales. <laughs> That's how I started it. I started it to get sales to get people interested interested in the degree program. Um, but you know, it's twofold. You know, if you like the podcast and you're interested in this stuff, we have a degree program. We have four uh, we have four degrees on our campus. You get a master's degree, uh, master's of arts in liturgical studies. You can get uh, an STL, a uh, licentiate in sacred theology, or an STD. Wow a doctorate in sacramental theology. So we have all of those. And the the two, the SDL and the SCD degree are pontifical degrees credited by the Vatican. 
And so if you are interested in any of this content, we have this wonderful graduate degree program. But my goal with the Liturgical Institute as director is to provide that information, but then also provide information at whatever level you want to access liturgical catechesis. So the podcast for the everyman, uh, if, you, if you like graduate study type of learning, but you don't want a master's degree, we have an online certificate program that you can go to at, at liturgy.online. You can check that out. But uh, our whole goal is, you know, to, you know, renew the sacred liturgy, to get people to understand what's actually happening in the Mass. And I would argue that um, the number one thing that we hear across our conferences, through our students in our curriculum, through the podcast, through our online certificate program, above and beyond, above and beyond the thing we hear often is, I never knew this before. Nobody ever told me this before. Yeah. And so as director of the Liturgical Institute, my goal is to make sure nobody ever has to say that again. Okay. If I could add just a couple of things about the nature of the, the program too. Um, see, you, you can study, like any discipline, right? You can come at it from a variety of different angles. And what's unique about the Liturgical Institute and Cardinal George's vision is that he saw a real lack of a, appreciation to what he would call the sacramentality of the liturgy. So by way of comparison, you could study the liturgy historically and dive into fourth century documents in the Syrian church and, and things like, and that's good. That's good to do. Or you can approach the liturgy from a, from a canonical or legal or rubrical type of angle as well. And those things are important too. Uh, or you can look at it psychologically or anthropologically or sociologically. There's, a, there's all sorts of different ways that you can approach it. But what he, Cardinal George, saw was lacking, and what is really the bedrock of the Liturgical Institute, is this sacramental approach where Jesus becomes manifest and present to the world today through sacramental signs, whether those are vest vestments or architecture or music or words or days of the week or hours of the day or ministers or times, anything like that, and that we come to encounter him through these same signs. And what's so beautiful about this approach is all you need to do uh, is to have senses. If you can see, smell, taste, touch, or hear, you're, you're uh, capable of, of this type of thing. You don't have to have you know, a canonical degree or a theological degree or a history degree. You just have to pay attention. And so it's a very accessible way to make the liturgy come alive to people when too often it's just sort of lifeless and uh, anemic and flat and certainly not uh, transformative in any way. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a person. I'm a, an amalgam of, uh, of soul uh, and body. And there may be others out there like me who are thinking, I thought mass was just mass. Why would I want to study liturgy? What would you guys say to that? Hmm. Well, I would uh, say that uh, the mass is that, you know, I, I think this is, a, I, this is a good analogy that I stole from somebody. I can't remember. <laughs> Robert Taft, I think, whom I learned about at the Liturgical Institute. He says that on the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, you see the creation of Adam, and you see the finger of God, and you see the finger of Adam. And what fills that gap, what bridges that gap, is the Paschal mystery of Jesus. And that Paschal mystery now is what's at the Mass. So why should you want to study the Mass or any of the sacraments or sacramentals or Liturgy of the Hour or anything like that? Because it is the point of contact 
where my finger and God's finger are rejoined and that 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 anima that that soul that you're talking about uh, Matthew is that's where we get infused uh with that divine radiant beautiful life of God and it starts to you know pour out of us so yeah it's the source and summit as the council would say so the more we can know about that and the more we can get our bodies involved in that the more we can be transfigured by it that's fantastic and yeah. hopefully that's piqued the interest of a, a couple of our listeners can we tie it maybe hit rewind and, and go right back can you give us a definition of the word liturgy what's the origin of the word liturgy to help us understand then what liturgy actually is yeah and it's uh the catechism for example will we'll pick it apart etymologically and it's made up of these two greek words laos which uh means people that's where we get the word laity and uh, ergia which means uh work and so i often uh sort of joke that because I have this cushy, you know, dias and courier job, I need these ergonomic work devices so I don't hurt myself when I'm planning liturgies and whatnot. <laughs> so a, a, a liturgy is a work or ergia done on behalf of the Laos, the people. Now, some have misinterpreted that to mean we own it, the people own the work. But that's only a secondary or derivative uh, meaning. We come to own it, but first it's a work done on our behalf. And that work is the Paschal mystery of Jesus, the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, where, whereby he builds this bridge. That is the liturgy. And if you could kind of pull the veil behind the mass or confession or the liturgy, the hours, what you would see is this bridge from earth to heaven. That's the pontifical work of Jesus. That's the, the, the essence of the liturgy right there but then the liturgy requires our participation. And we've heard that, that terminology, active participation. Jesse, uh, on, a, on a study group that you were guest on for us the other night, you mentioned that active isn't necessarily the best word in that instance. Uh, it's more an actual participation. Can you, can you give us a little bit about our participation in the liturgy and, and what is the requirements of, in the instance of, of the Mass, what, what is the requirement of, of the laity and what is their, their role within the liturgy? Sure, and 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 you're right. Um, in, in the early 1900s, uh, you know, Pope Pius X talked about active participation for the very first time, and the Italian was better translated to actual. And I think we often mistake active, for, at least in the states here, as we're actually doing something. We're 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 participating. We're we're moving. We're involved in a way that somebody might be actively playing a sport as opposed to passively in the bleachers or in the stands watching. And so this is this is crucial. This is the whole thing that that ties Vatican II in a nice little bow for us through something called the liturgical movement, which had all these great minds, you know, use this phrase active participation to lead up to these great changes in the sacred liturgy so that we can more actively participate. It all comes down to the idea that um, we need to be involved in the sacred liturgy. There's a line in the mass, you know, where the priest says, my sacrifice and yours. This doesn't mean that there are two sacrifices. He's not sacrificing one thing over there, and then like we're sacrificing another thing over here. Together, the priest in persona Christi Capitis, the head and the body, us, the body of Christ, are participating together. We cooperate together for this sacrifice. And what I mean by that is we need to be offering something as well. 
and we need to be offering ourselves. So the, the optimal moment for this is when the priest is preparing the gifts on the altar, the wine and the host. So you need to be putting yourself on the altar. And if it helps you just literally imagine yourself laying on the altar or sitting in the chalice. Uh, Chris does this great thing with his kids where he tells them to throw their heart, uh, chuck it in the chalice. And so, you know, I tell my kids that. So I see them do that in, in the mass. When you do that, when you offer yourself good, bad, ugly, and, and also those around you, everybody that you said you would pray for, your spouse, your children, your coworkers, when you do that, you get to ride on the coattails of Christ, but not in a passive way, in an actual way, so that when you are elevated on the host or in the chalice, you also become Christ. So this is not just simply transubstantiation where the effects of wine and, and bread are just merely, you know, transitioning to Jesus Christ. If you're there too, if you offer yourself and you sacrifice yourself too, then you get to become Christ. And then the culmination of this whole process is that you consume your own perfection. You consume Christ as your own perfection. This begins a hopefully, hopefully an upward spiral of sanctification and transfiguration because God became man so that we might become God. This is the process of deification, of sanctification, of transfiguration. And if you are not offering yourself, if you, if you have nothing to offer, then you do not fully participate in that sacrifice in the altar. I think that's a beautiful, um, a beautiful image to, to lay yourself there on the pattern, to, to throw your heart into the chalice. It's, that's a beautiful image. I, I just wish more people could actually be thinking that when they're sitting there in the pews rather than, and it's very easy to do. It's, it's very easy to get distracted. Life is so loud around us. Life is so busy. I was actually listening to a podcast from uh, Dr. Edward Shree just last night, and he was talking about preparing yourself better for Mass. Why, why are we going to Mass with the radio on, with our favourite music playing, or, or why, are we, why are we distracting ourselves with life around us rather than actually preparing ourselves for what it is that we're going to? And I suppose that that's the next step of the process. Firstly, you prepare yourself, but then when you're there, that participation, you're putting yourself there on the altar. And, and yeah, it's just a beautiful image. And I think it's a really powerful one that we nearly, we, we really do need to, to grab hold of and, and, and to, to remind people of. So yeah, thank you. Be- beautiful, beautiful paint, uh, picture that you paint there. The, the question I have when it comes to the mass is we're all there. We're all actively participating or actually participating but we all seem to be doing something different and we can go from one church to the next church in the diocese and things feel a little bit different and to the next church in the next diocese and things feel a little bit different. If the church is universal, how come everybody has put their own spin on the liturgy and and one priest does it this way and one priest does it that way. If it's as simple as say the black and do the red, how come every mass that you go to from every different priest feels different? And at what point does it cross the line from, this is just their own style to now they're actually misinterpreting what it is that's actually supposed to happen there. And I know there's a, there's a lot in that, but can you, can you have a stab at that one? Uh, yeah, it's uh, that uh, uh, Mark, I think is uh, really the liturgical and maybe the ecclesial question of the day is balancing uh, unity of the church with the legitimate diversity of, cultures and countries and individuals and circumstances is, uh, and, and it's a good tension. It's meant to be there. We're not all meant to be, you know, identical. 
we're not, we're not. Um, but at the same time, we're not all meant to do our own uh, liturgy ourselves. So where does this, uh, where does this uh, virtue that, that lies somewhere in that mean, where is it? And it's a, it's a difficult question. To be sure, in uh, you know the sort of postmodern world that we're in now, we are very strong, uh, especially in the West, on individualism, and that's where we're formed. You know, from from very, from being very young to do your do your own thing and be your own person and things like. And th- those, of course, are good. You know, uh, individual uh, um, rights and liberties and responsibilities are great things. Um, but what has um, you know, suffered is sort of the social dimension of the church generally, right? So even the, the the notion of the mystical body of Christ, it's one body with many cells, and that's the same the same dynamic. So when we come together at the liturgy, yeah, it's certainly it's it's our secular formation to be pretty individualistic in our thinking, and it's it's rather difficult to kind of step into a different world or different culture, a different city, and decide now I'm going to become, you know, uh, you know, uh, more, more social in my, in my thinking. So yeah, it's, um, it's really the challenge I think uh, of, of the day, but I think the first step to rectifying it is understanding the nature of the church and of her liturgy is where individuals come together in corporate action. Uh, and to skew that one way or the other is to is to damage the liturgy, to damage the mystical body, to damage ourselves, and really weaken the the efficacy of of what God is trying to do with us. Just to just to add to that too, um, you know, the liturgy could look a lot different depending on what happened historically, what types of conversation, um, you know, the presbyterate was having or bishops or the Pope or anything. It could look a lot different than we have now. Um, in fact, it does, depending on whatever right you participate in. But we need to understand that that core principle that, that unites all of this is that act of participation, this sanctifying process, praising God, sanctifying mankind. That's the core, right? So, if you have that, it could it could look a lot different depending on what happens in, in in history. But the other thing too that we have to keep in mind is that we we have to have this unifying voice, and as long as we have that those core principles down, that's the most important thing. And then we can start to explain all of those other nuances because you can't explain why you would wear a chasuble if you if you don't first understand well what is the priest what is the priesthood what is this pontifex that we talk about that is the bridge between god and man and so you start with those core principles and that bleeds into our knowledge and understanding of the rubrics but what we find that you know some of the things that were happening before vatican II is that people were focusing so much on devotionals during the liturgy not always but a lot of time that we love that. We love a personal identity and a personal prayer and a personal relationship with Christ. It's the core of who we are as Christians. Now, I think that sometimes we get away from that and, and we have turned the Mass into a devotional experience where we want to have that, you know, those feelings. I mean, I remember when I was in college, we had, we had the drum set, we had the guitars and the great music and all this type of stuff. And I felt so great after Mass because I felt such a strong connection to what was going on. But then when I went home to my home parish and it, we didn't have that, I, I experienced a dryness in my sacramental life that I had never experienced before. And I thought for sure that it had to be the Mass and that I wasn't the one wrong. And so 
when we do those things, when we focus and we rely so much on the emotive experience, then the, then we don't use the intellectual part of what's happening. And Virgil Michael says, you know, intelligent worship is, is, is something that we have to all strive for. You have to first know what you're doing, and then that will then enhance the actual feeling that you have. And there's so much that goes on within the Mass that, that we don't know. All the, every action has a reason, has a meaning. And myself included, you could ask me, what does that mean? And, and in most instances, I won't be able to say what that means, what is actually taking place there. You know what you see week in, week out. The priest says this, we say that in response. Week in, week out, we get that. But to actually have a deeper understanding of why, what is happening there and why, that's something that I think the church, uh, we, we do need to, to renew within the church. And, and thanks to the work that you guys are doing, hopefully that we, we can actually make up some lost ground there. Um, sorry, you go, Matthew. Yeah, there's a couple of words that have come up in our discussion uh, that I think are worthy of some definition. The first one uh, I'd like you guys to talk about is that word rubrics. What are we talking about here? Yeah, uh, rubrics, uh, um I think Mark mentioned this earlier about uh, uh, say the black and do the red. So when you open up a, 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 a church's liturgical book, the words that the minister or a minister says are printed in black, but the words in red uh, are called rubrics and they tell you what to do. And I, I think the etymology of this is, uh, it, it means red, rubber, or something like that. And it's, I suppose, related to like rubies. And what, um, what rubrics should be considered as is kind of, they, they help the church to manage her sacramental system so that they, in the end, they end up radiating the face of Jesus and not the face of Father Bill or Chris Karstens or Jesse Weiler or something like that. Because Jesus is much more uh, beautiful and uh, powerful and transformative uh, than any of us. And so it's sort of like, um, you know, the, the, the church likens her liturgy today to a, a work of art. Uh, Ars Celebrandi is how she says it. And just like, you know, an artist has to, like, you know, I have these kids and, you know, occasionally they'll do this uh, color by numbers or they'll do connect the dots with numbers. You've got to follow the rubrics. Otherwise, your work of art is going to be mangled and deformed. And what the rubrics do in the liturgy is they help the church and the celebrants to celebrate in such a way that what is the product, what is produced is Jesus radiantly beautiful before us you know so again as mark said you know you see something you say what is it and what does it mean um it better mean jesus and so that's what rubrics help us to do is is let the ritual radiate christ Mm, wonderful wonderful another word that's come up is devotional uh and we've we're talking a lot about liturgy and now we've learned that there's this other thing called a devotional would you talk about the hierarchy of prayer for us a bit? You should have Chris talk about hierarchy. This is actually a, a, an immensely difficult question. What is the difference between a liturgy and a devotional prayer? And, you know, if we go back to that etymology that the catechism uses as its, as its baseline, I think what, what you see in a liturgy is just a work of the entire church. So one person prays morning prayer in his uh, kitchen is an activity of the entire church around the world 
in the past and in the future and in heaven and in purgatory because it's an action of the entire mystical body of Christ. And that type of liturgical prayer, as Jesse was getting at, has a certain flavor and a certain character to it. Very often, because it accommodates so many people, it's rather objective and transcendent. Um, but devotional prayer, personal prayer, sometimes called private prayer, is uh, not so much an action of the mystical body, but of a person, a particular person. And, you know, the four of us or, or any four people uh, have different temperaments and needs and have different circumstances. Some people are married, some are single, some have cancer, some have won the lottery. We all need different things. And so our devotional prayer is meant to address those particular quirks and needs and desires of the individual person. And both of those are necessary to kind of grow into the fullness, the full stature of Christ. But it's when they get kind of blended uh, together and liturgy becomes more devotional that that it doesn't do anybody any good. But yeah, Mar uh, Matthew, that's uh, that's really a, a great question. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Now, uh, as a, a long-time uh, listener, I also um, happen to know that you have uh, a lot of fun on the podcast. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, you guys are three gents that get along very, very well. And um, I, I noticed that that humour begins in the titles of some of your podcast episodes and I've often stated to friends that uh, Mr. Jesse Weiler seems to be giving Dr. Scott Hahn a run for his money as king of puns. Do you have some, do you, are there any uh, favourite titles? <laughs> and would you share some of them with us? <laughs> well, I have, a, I have a few favourite episodes, first of all, because I think, you know, it's important to understand all of these those, these concepts, but there's been some episodes that truly blew my mind. Uh, the two that the two that I think of as my favorite, absolute. So if you want to start somewhere, these are good ones. Uh, the first one is Pete and Repeat, where we talk about the language of the the liturgy, and I, I think it's very easy to just misconstrue. I mean, in fact, we just did this whole session on liturgy on Authenticum, talking about the translations of the of the rites, but it's more than that. The, the language of the liturgy is not just a straight translation. There's, a, there's an artistry to it that I never knew. And so Chris and Dennis did a really good job breaking that open and talking about how the language of the liturgy is designed and crafted in a very specific way that allows us to better engage and enter into the sacred liturgy and enter into the language. Because if the word became flesh, that word does have to be beautiful and it does have to be a little bit different than we would normally speak. So that's the first one. Um, the other one uh, that uh, I, I think is just phenomenal is the, um, oh my gosh, I just had it in my head. Chris is the one we talked about the, um, the uh, about chaos and order and music and you, were and you got into the planets and how the planets all, or all ordered. Uh, I forgot the name of the episode now and I had it on the tip of my tongue before. But, um well, you're on your own there, man. I mean, yeah. you're the one who titles these things. I don't even understand half the titles. <laughs> now, when you say we're funny guys and we have a lot of fun, I'm the. If Jesse's the funny everyman, I'm the I'm the serious one who doesn't have fun. So, yeah, <laughs> your your job is is quite difficult sometimes to to get Jesse and, and Dennis back on on subject, isn't it? 
Yes. I'm glad that comes through on the podcast, how <laughs> difficult it is with these two uh, clowns. I think perhaps this is why I've, I've uh, found myself um, feeling um, a great friendship towards Jesse, because I'm sure Mark would agree that uh, I'm the one that brings chaos to Perusia. Absolutely. 100% you, you, have to, <laughs> you, you have to have fun with this stuff because, yeah. um, you know, from a, just from a marketing standpoint, it's got to be unique, right? So it has to be yeah. something that someone's going to want to listen to and engage with. But the other thing, too, is we're combating a very negative perception of what liturgy means. In fact, you know, I, when I took the job at the Liturgical Institute, I was worried that I was going to be working with a bunch of, you know, rad trads, as people like to say. Um, people were like really stiff and self-righteous and everything like that. And so I was right. It was very true. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, you know, you have, to, you have to have fun and you have to be joyful about it because nobody else is doing that. You know, we're, we're getting all of the serious stuff. We're getting all of the commentary. And this is, that's all people hear. You need to do this. You need to do this. And this is why. And it's really important. So to flip that on its head and make it approachable, it needs to be engaging. It needs to be fun. It needs to be joyful. But, but also because the liturgy is joyful, it should be amusing. Uh, Romano Gordini, we did a whole episode about Romano Gordini talking about the playfulness of the liturgy. Uh, that one was really uh, amazing. And uh, that one's called Liturgical Jacuzzi. So you could check yes. that one out. Um, <laughs> I was hoping to come up. I was going to mention it if you didn't. <laughs> uh, that was, that's a Dennis McNamara original there. But, um, but there is. There is a playfulness. And, so, um, and, and if we're created in God's image and likeness and we're able to be playful and joyful, then we should be able to put that lens on the liturgy as well. It's interesting to, to be speaking about being joyful with uh, the liturgy. When people go to mass, that's the big that's the big complaint. This is boring. I, I'm not getting anything out of it myself. And can can you make that connection between talking about it, but actually then participating in it? You don't have to be laughing and and carrying on to be joyful, do you? Can you can you make that connection between joy and a solemn liturgy? Because they do I seem to contradict at times mm, in, in people's minds. Yeah. I, I think the type of joy that uh, that our faith brings and that the liturgy can bring is, um, you know, like the joy that the saints have. And in fact, that's that, that's kind of the end game. And so, you know, think of uh, like Pier Giorgio Frassati or something like that. Uh, I mean, there was a guy who was uh, joyful and alive, fully alive. And I mean, you could see I mean, any, every picture you see of this guy, you think that guy has got it going on he is there is something that he has that is uh beautiful and attractive and that's what i want that's the type of joy it's not you know silly uh you know uh, fleeting or things like that because you know even amidst his joy i mean he had a, he had he worked very hard and he suffered as well and and you know uh, christ is joyful so you know the the, the liturgy is kind of this um you know, St. Leo the Great would has said, and Matthew, you've probably heard this on the podcast a number of times, what was visible in our Savior is passed over into his sacraments. And so, you know, as Jesus was joyful, yet serious and uh, playful, uh, the, the Mass is that too. That doesn't mean, you know, uh, clown Masses and, you know, happy clappy and things like okay. that. But it means the type of joy that you find in encountering the truth and something that's eternal and something that gives meaning to your life uh, in this otherwise, you know, chaotic sort of world. That, that's the type of, uh, of joy and gladness that, uh, uh, that, that the, the Mass should have. 
should have. Yeah. And just look, just look at the apostles coming down from the mountain after the transfiguration with with mm. Christ. You know, not only was Christ refulgent and emitting light and joy and, and beauty, but that is that the apostles absorbed that as well. So their faces were glowing; they were literally glowing. And joy is a part of that refulgence. It's it's an aspect that's I think pretty critical. Yeah, you're right. And that's that's not just the the refulgence that's reserved to Moses and the apostles, but it's meant for the four of us, our families, our neighbors. I mean, we should be leaving those church doors too, if we do this liturgy thing right. You know, this is we're kind of soaking up the radiance of Christ for that hour, and now we go out and shine it out into the into the dark world. And that's the command right at the end in the dismissal. That that's the command to take it mm-hmm. to the world. Yeah. And uh and speaking of uh, joy, the, the Liturgy Guys has produced two uh, spin-off podcasts. I'm sure we'll get into Coffee Talk next week, but uh, I really wanted to talk about the, the latest spin-off a little bit. And, uh, Chris, I believe you have a um, personal connection with the fourth Liturgy Guy. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about Liturgy and Donuts? Uh, yeah, Liturgy and Donuts. Uh, Matthew, thanks for bringing that up. I, I'm a little sorry to say, you know, since we've been on hiatus from public mass for so many months, Liturgy and Donuts is the donuts have gone stale. Is that the only <laughs> supply of donuts? You get them from the church? That's the only place you can get them? Uh, yeah, but Liturgy and Donuts that began with, uh, actually, Jesse, this is Jesse's fault. We were recording podcasts in the house. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, my, uh, I don't know, my son Lawrence, or we call him Lars, uh, came in, and he must have been four years old at the time. And Jesse asked him, I said, hey, Lars, what's your favorite part about uh, the Mass? And, you know, what, what, a, what's his proud father going to hear? You know, it's, it's the music, it's the architecture, it's the sublime <laughs> preaching, whatever it is. Having donuts after was his uh, response. And so that's the genesis of Liturgy and Donuts. And they're just kind of little mini uh, podcasts where I, I want to keep them as, um, you know, relaxed as possible. Just a dad talking about, I kind of want to model, you know, how does a dad talk to his to a seven-year-old about the liturgy? And so we just, we just ask him about things. And, you know, what did you see when you went to Mass? What did you think? And that, like, I, I try to do a little, uh, you know, age-appropriate catechesis. And mm-hmm. uh, I haven't gotten my own part down yet, you know, I... You know, I want to elicit more of uh, the wisdom of a seven-year-old, but uh, anyway, I'm talking too much now as well. But that's Liturgy and Donuts. Well, I've been enjoying Liturgy and Donuts, and, and I feel you are modeling quite well. Um, and I've, uh, I've done a little bit of, uh, of a copycat, and I've, I've started trying to, to talk to, to my seven-year-old um, on the Great. subject, Amelia. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. That was This has a lot of experience. He talks to me. And so then he, yeah, well, then he says, yes. uh, if yeah. Jesse understands this, then Lawrence, he, he better be able to, to digest this information, I think. Fantastic. Can I ask a question from the perspective of a parent now? Um, but, but there was a parish that where our family moved into at one point in time, and they were really big on the children's liturgy. And for those who aren't aware, I'm sure most are, but for those who aren't aware, that's at the beginning of Mass, the children go out and they read a scripture and they, they colour in a picture that, that um, relates to the scripture of the day. But my big concern with that as a parent was they're being taken out of the Mass. And where are they going to best learn it? They're going to learn it 
in the church. I, I feel it's like taking them to a sporting event and standing out at the, the coffee, shop, coffee, shop, coffee shop outside and explaining what's going on inside as the crowd's cheering, but they're not actually witnessing it. So can either of you comment on the role of a children's liturgy um, running in conjunction with the Mass, and should that be done at the same time? Is there a better time to, to do that? I'm not suggesting that, that those children don't need that, that, that particular uh, form of education, but is that really the best time to be offering that to them? Yeah, no. I think, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we. I think what we see here more often is like a children's liturgy of the word, where the kids will be there for most of the mass, but then they'll get dismissed prior to the liturgy of the word. And I think they come back before the liturgy of the Eucharist. Or I might be wrong about that. Yeah. You know, again, I I think you know, Mark, what you're describing is kind of what we were talking about before. So you've got people from one week old to a hundred years old in a church perhaps, and somehow the liturgy has to speak to all of them. Uh, one liturgy in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, I think uh, it's my opinion that there are some well-intentioned uh, uh, efforts to try to speak to the kids or whatever it is by, you know, dismissing them and bringing them back. And perhaps there is some merit to that. But I think the better solution uh, would be to make, to help, the, the church has already done this. You don't have to be creative to do this. Um, you have to be faithful and you have to cultivate a good Ars Celebrani, but the church has it there, is to celebrate a liturgy that can speak to everybody in there. there there's a line by a priest named uh, Aidan Kavanaugh who says that if children are bored in the liturgy, it's probably a good chance that everybody is bored in the liturgy too, their parents as well. And so the way you make the liturgy unboring is to make it excellent and beautiful and awesome and not superficial or mean or anything like that, but make it an experience of something that they cannot get. That's better than an experience they can get anywhere else throughout the week in the quality and the nature of the music and how in the preaching, in the beauty of the church and the architecture and the way people behave and how you dress as a family and what's you know expected. And so um, I think that's the better solution. That's how you form your kids. That's how you form your kids to, um, um, to participate. And I, you know, I think if, when my kids leave my house, I don't want to say, I, I want to do everything I possibly could have to form them to par to participate well in the liturgy. So. Absolutely. Know. They're the generation that are going to continue this. So if there is a revival in the understanding of the liturgy, they have to be included in it because we might learn it for ourselves, but if we're not passing that on, and if we're, in my opinion, if we're sending them away um, for, for a re really the most important part of their week as well. And sure, we do bring them back for the, the liturgy of the Eucharist and, and they do get brought back in at that point in time. But if we're sending them the way, the liturgy of the word is important. And I think we're doing them a disservice by just assuming that they're not going to understand. Let's get them to colour in pictures of, of that scene so that they can better interact. I think we're doing them a disservice in, in doing that personally. Yeah. I, I think too, I mean, the, the priest or the deacon who's preaching just you know, in virtue of his ordination, he doesn't become, you know, as, uh, as loquacious the word. He doesn't become golden tongue. He's not J John Chrysostom all of a sudden because he's ordained. On the other hand, we believe that grace is a real thing that, um, you know, doesn't, again, doesn't transform him into being a great preacher, but we believe it's a real thing. And it's a part of his uh, a sacred calling and ordination and that he is capacitated to preach in a way that I'm not or Mrs. Smith, who's running the, you know, the children's liturgy of the word is not. So there's a lot of things to consider in that, but I think they all lead back to the liturgy. 
beautiful. Well, thank you. And just to just to add to that too. I mean, I I would argue that even all of that happening, let's say you know they're you have really good people at your parish and they're doing a really great job, you know, having coloring books and explaining things. I would argue that probably the majority of the time, the kids still don't understand that idea of active participation, because if they did, they would be like, well, why, why, why am I not in there? And so I think if you start with that and you start with explaining that to your children, you know, that other stuff you can fill in later and you can connect those dots later, just like Chris said, you know, connecting the dots. Yeah. But if you don't start with that, if they don't even know why they're there in the first place, then you're never going to get them connected. And so, and you you, sh- you also shouldn't also just like rely on the church to do all that catechesis where you just drop them off and do that. And so oh, before yeah. and after are great times. And, you know, sometimes occasionally during the liturgy, I will pick a moment to, you know, really explain to my son or daughter, hey, that's, that's a dalmatic because it has sleeves and, you know, as uh, you know, things like that, because they can have an actual connection. Even the liturgy of the word, though, uh, and I'll hand it back after this. You know, if, if you guys have done this, you do that Lexio Divina uh, sure. on like a Sunday gospel in the week ahead. It is amazing what comes out of the mouth of a three-year-old, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, you know, out of these abstract passages out of St. John. You know, I don't even know what they mean. And my eight-year-old has this insight and he's plugged in. I mean, that's how you that's how you get the kids into it is you, you teach them, you form them how to do it. So it's great stuff. And then we need we need them to be there so we can learn from them with those little gems that they come out with as well. Yeah, mm, definitely. And uh, look, I'm hoping that uh, our listeners on Facebook Live are going to be uh, posting a few questions. And while I'm looking for uh, our listener questions, I'd like to ask you both to imagine that you have. Uh, both some priests and some laity who are listening right now and who are thinking, I've got to go and listen to this podcast and learn more about the liturgy. But what would be your advice, a sort of a step-by-step instruction of how priests and people might improve the liturgy at their own parish? What would be your step-by-step? What would they do first? What would they do second? All right, Jesse, I'll go. <laughs> oh, I, I can go. I can go. Well, my, I mean, I know what my answer is. Get, well, first, get plugged into the Liturgical Institute. I mean, oh, the, pod, the podcast is a great resource. Uh, we have, I mean, not everybody's going to get a degree in liturgy, but we have these wonderful online certificate programs right now. And in fact, we're running a, an amazing little sale. We were supposed to have a young adult liturgy conference this weekend, this coming weekend, but we couldn't because of the virus. So we've bundled six of these courses together, the bulk of which are taught by Dennis and Chris, five, five out of the six. And, and then the, the sixth one is a course on liturgy and discipleship, which I don't think anybody ever really talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've bundled those together for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. You can get six certificates at the end of the whole thing. But that's th- those courses, we have a lot of priests and deacons taking those courses, and we have a lot of laity and, and religious as well taking those courses. So um, that's th- that content's designed to bridge that gap between the priest and, and the people. But um, I mean, I'm just, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but you really can't go anywhere without starting with that idea that you're sacrificing yourself. And so if the priest and the people are not on the same page there, that's step one. And unfortunately, and Chris, maybe you can confirm or deny this, that that's a step most people don't even know about. 
Um, you know, I've had conversations, you know, with a, with a relative, 70 year old relative, you know, talking about this whole thing and then kind of went through that idea of active participation. She looked me back in the face and said, I'm 70 years old. Nobody's ever told me that before. So I, I you know, I, I, I hate to assume that everybody's already at that point. And then, you know, what do we do with rubrics? I, that's a really big point. And so that's step one. Uh, but then anything that you can pile onto that, I mean, mute, we haven't even scratched the surface with like music is such a big part of the liturgy as well. Um, you know, there's so much to talk about. And it's, uh, you know, we started the podcast four years ago. I thought we'd probably run out of content after the first year. But Chris, as you can probably attest, we're always finding new things to talk about, new angles to talk about. So there's tons out there. Yeah. Yeah, I think too. I, uh, I've i been thinking about this a lot myself because I don't know how things are in Australia, but we're starting to get back to public mass. Yet there's all these restrictions that really make yeah. it painful and very minimalistic, uh, you know, no singing and few people and, you know, the, the lists go on and on. And I think there's a real... Um, I mean, it's just they're aber- they're necessary, I guess, but they're aberrations to the liturgy. And I, I think there's a fear that if pastors and their councils and people aren't proactive about getting the liturgy back to a to a high level, it's just going to stay this sort of thin, watered down version. And so, yeah, I think it's it's about going back to basics, back to some fundamental truths about the liturgy that need to be reintroduced. I think pastors and their councils should read the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Uh, I think they should, as Jesse mentioned, really revisit their musical program because that seems such a powerful way to communicate. And um, I, I think I, I wrote about this in a in an auto, if you don't mind me plugging out a Ramus uh, bulletin. Oh, is uh, um, uh, upcoming is, is is what could be done. And the fourth one I just said is people just need, you know, the, the goal of the liturgy is to become less like I am now and more like uh, God is. And that's, that's proven to be real difficult for me over the last uh, 50 years or so, but it's a lot of humility and docility and desire to be transformed and transfigured. God will do most of the work, but only if we let him, only if I let him. And so, it, it, you know, that if if you don't have a big dose of humility in trying to work for liturgical renewal, I mean, it just it's not going to work, and that's unpopular for everybody, myself included. So, I know we're running out of time here today, and we're going to have to get you both back on, and, and we hope to get uh, Dennis McNamara on in the next few weeks as well to to continue this discussion. But just a question that came up the other night, Jesse, when you were on the the, the Bible study group that we have. Um, and the, quest, the question that's burning in the church at the moment, um, and I know we're not going to have time to, to do this justice, but I thought your response the other night, Jesse, was fantastic. So I'd like to, to air it in this platform as well. The question of communion on the hand versus communion on the tongue. Um, obviously, it, it's a big debate at the moment. Uh, what, what is the church's teaching and how do we apply that teaching to the, to the current scenario? Sure. Um, the, the short answer is that both are permitted and the, the church sees that you can, you can do either. Uh, now is one, you know, potentially more reverent than the other. I think you can make an argument for that. Um, but the reality is that both are, both are allowed. Uh, is this going to be the case in perpetuity going forward? Who knows? You know, maybe the church will come out and say, you know, um, 
you know, no more communion in the hand. Now, uh, as I think you guys are probably experiencing too, uh, we can only receive in the hand because of, you know, safety precautions in the liturgy. But um, I think the point um, that is really important here is that uh, it, this this issue, people get really uh, passionate about for one reason. And it's that if this is truly Christ, if this is the Eucharist, and, and every single part of the Eucharist is 100% Christ. It's not like if you have a little dust come off of the, a consecrated host, that's just, that's like a 0.0%, 0.01% Christ. No, that's 100% fully Christ. That's the nature of the sacrament. So if we have that in our mind, then we should be thinking in our heads, how am I being most reverent with this at the same time? And so even if you're receiving on the tongue, there should be a patent underneath to catch any type of um, crumbs that come off of the host as well. And so I've, I mentioned this uh, on the, in your little group study last night, but um, if I'm ever an extra, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion and I distribute, um, I, when I'm done and I've you know, taken the ciborium back, I can feel on my fingers a texture there, uh, residue remnants of the host that I was distributing. So if that's true and I felt that on my fingers – and then, you know, what I do is I will lick my fingers because I just want to be as reverent as possible. But if that's true, then that means that, you know, there are residual particles or, um, you know, that, that come off of the host during that process. And so communion in the hand, you could argue that, you know, that's not a, it's, it's a lot harder to preserve that. There are way, I think there are ways to do it again, you know, if you're going to lick your hands or, you know, whatever. But um, the point is you should consume it. If it, if it is Christ and it's just the spec there, it's 100% Christ. It should be consumed because we need to have that reverence. And so I, that's the point I think people get at when they're arguing communion in the hand, communion on the tongue. And I think you could talk about that till you're blue in the face, but the reality of the matter are both are permitted by the Catholic church. Thank you. No, thank you for that. And just another one on the current scenario, I'm guessing it's the same in the States. I'm not 100% sure, but removing holy water from the, from the stoops as you come into the church. Um, is, is that something that should be done? Um, is there a health concern? This is a powerful sacramental that we're effectively giving up for a time. What, what do you say on that particular one? Because that's another one that's come up quite a bit lately. I think you should install holy water misters like they do in hot parts of the... Oh, sorry. No. Chris, you can answer this one. No, I can't though. I mean, it's uh, it seems more medical than than uh, liturgical. Like I know our local public pool is open right now. But you go to the parish, uh, there's no there's no holy water. There's hand sanitizer where holy water used to be standing. So uh, it seems a more of a scientific uh, question. But yeah, I uh, I don't know the answer to that, Mark. <laughs> and, and that's a host of of, of questions, right? That uh, that's you know, right. It's just. It, it's, so one of an, it's one of a number of inconsistencies that are just leaving people completely confused at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully, God willing, that this this whole situation comes to an end soon and, and the normal that we adopt, it's not necessarily going to be the normal that we were used to. Hopefully, it's a better normal. It's something that we can actually really uh, pick up and go on with. So, yeah, I, I, I just really hope that when things are resolved, that people haven't forgotten the good things that we had before and that they do all come back again. And that, that's my prayer. Yeah. Now we're pretty much out of time today. Um, just before we finish, I'd like to, um, to plug um, for people to get in touch with the liturgical Institute. What's, what's the best way for people to reach out? 
the best way is to go to our website, liturgicalinstitute.org. And on there, we have a plethora of information that you can access, whether you want to, you're interested in a degree or conferences or our online certificate program or podcast or anything like that. Um, that's the best way to kind of check us out. Again, I, I would definitely say if this content has interest you, listen to the podcast. And if the podcast interests you, then check out our certificate program. Um, it's, it's pretty affordable and you can get a certificate of completion, you know, professional growth, that type of stuff. Um, and I, Dennis and Chris teach these courses and I still watch them so I can brush up on, on how to talk about these things because they're so good at explaining these things at a level that can be retained by, you know, by anybody. Beautiful. And, and to get the, short sharp discussions on various different topics definitely the liturgy guys podcast available where you can get all good podcasts and chris Mm -hmm. from you any any final comments what what uh what can we hope for in in the in the time ahead in the church and in the revival of the liturgy and and people's understanding of it (sighs) well I've been thinking a lot about that lately, Mark. I think uh, it, it certainly is not going to happen by itself. It's going to take um, uh, people who desire holiness above other things and desire to be to think with the church and know what the church is teaching and have the energy to implement it. Um, status quo is not going to last much longer. So it's going to take a, a different degree of uh, intentionality seems to be the word these days, but that's what it's going to take if we're going to make this happen. So it's so a lot of work to be done, but... Um, you know, Jesus does the heavy lifting. We have to be faithful and do our part, and it'll happen. Fantastic. And the liturgy, guys, is currently at the end of season four. When does when does the new season start? Uh, so we'll publish uh, episode 37 uh, probably tomorrow, and then at the end of this week, the last little episode of season four. Uh, we are hoping to launch season five, five somewhere around uh, August, September, hopefully August. And we might pop in now and then to talk about different things. Um, Dennis and Chris are both teaching for us this summer, so that might be giving us some opportunity to have some more conversations. Uh, but that's the luxury of having such a de- devoted audience base is that we can always plug in whenever we want to, and I know people are going to be able to get our content. So. Absolutely, and that gives our listeners a couple of months to catch up on all <laughs> seasons of The Liturgy Guys. And that's certainly my challenge to the, our Australian listeners. Wonderful. We'll love it. It'll be worth the time. Well, there they are. They're two of the three liturgy guys, Jesse Weiler and Chris Carstens. Thank you so much for your time on the Perusia podcast today. And Thank hopefully we can, we can get you back on um, in, in the months ahead and, and really dive deep into some discussions around liturgy uh, in the church. So thank you so much for your time today. God bless, Matthew. gentlemen. Thank you. Yes, thank you Matthew. so much. Matthew Taig also, thank you so much for joining us today. Our special guest host, Matthew Taig, and we will look to have you back on down the track as well. It's great having you on. Very welcome. I've enjoyed myself. Thank you for the opportunity. And for all of our listeners who are watching this in the various different platforms, just a reminder that if you're watching this on YouTube, just click that bell to subscribe to the podcast and and be instantly notified when new podcasts are made available. Also, to the people who are listening to the podcast uh, through various different podcast apps, please share that with other people. Let's really build the community listening to the Perusia podcast and, and join in the discussion. Any comments, any feedback, it, it's always very welcome. So, so we look forward to that. That's been another Perusia podcast. I'm your host, Mark Griffin. Thank you very much for joining us and we look forward to uh, speaking with you next time. God bless. <laughs>